0: Welcome to The Accountant Quits, brought to you by AuditChain, the world's first decentralized continuous audit and real-time reporting protocol. On this podcast, we discuss how blockchain will impact the accounting profession and how accountants should prepare themselves for the future of work. My name's Umar, your host, and even if some might refer to me as the accountant gone rogue, my job is to provide you with the blockchain knowledge you need that will be relevant for the accounting industry as a whole. Welcome to episode 13, and today you're in treat. My guest is none other than Ian Grigg, considered as one of the pioneers of financial cryptography. His groundbreaking work for inventing the Ricardian contract has brought him acclaim and attention from all over the globe. Ian is well known for having coined the term triple entry accounting, where back in 2005 he proposed a new concept of having a third entry as a digitally signed receipt to avoid transaction frauds. I view Ian as a modern-day polymath. His work and knowledge spans across a number of different subjects. And naming just a few would be digital identity, blockchain-based audit, and frameworks for building financial cryptography systems. Recently, Ian published a book called Identity Cycle, where he explores the relationships of social groups to identity. The main theme for today is how technology does a better job at providing trust that we humans will ever be capable of, and how accounting and auditing can benefit from it. In today's episode with Ian, we'll discuss how technology can incentivize people to collaborate instead of cheating, a new way of audit without the need to appoint an external auditor, limitations of sampling audits, the future of centralized audit providers, how triple entry accounting helps to prevent financial failures and frauds, and much more. Ian, welcome to the show and thanks for making the time to be here. Hello. For people in the blockchain and crypto space, you're a very renowned figure. But for people who don't know you, could you please share your life's work with them and maybe what your
1: what your current work is? Oh, okay, that's a long story. Um, back in '95, when I was doing an MBA, I discovered that digital cash could be modeled in financial terms, digital cash was this new invention at the time where David Chaum and his team in Amsterdam were issuing dollar notes onto the net. And in finance classes, I learned that dollars were, in fact, zero-coupon bonds as they modeled them in finance. And I realized that if we could issue a dollar, we could issue a zero-coupon bond. If we could issue a zero-coupon bond, we could do all of finance. So I and Gary Halvind Set up a startup in Amsterdam, across the across the town from David Jones' startup, DigiCash, to create the rest of finance. And we chose bonds as our go-to implementation, our uh, MVP, if you like. And out of that investigation, trying to figure out what bonds were, I came up with the concept of uh, contracts. So I discovered that bonds were contracts. So I figured out how to uh, create contracts into an, a digital format. And along the way, we also did a lot of work with the transactions and so forth. And we eventually came up with this this expression that the the receipt is the transaction. And out of that grew this notion that uh, we were doing triple entry accounting, which many years later, I had a sort of flash of inspiration, which later turned to be seeded by readings of Todd Boyle's uh, work, which had come afterwards. He, 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 being a real accountant, had been following the same path, but without being a computer scientist, he wasn't able to realize it in an efficient fashion or to get it off the ground, although he tried. But we had got it off the ground accidentally and delivered it basically in its, in its working form. We were running it for several cycles, um, several issuances, and still running it in, in various terms. So that... That was like the genesis of financial cryptography, which happened in the late 90s, early 2000s. After that, it all went a bit quiet because of various issues until a blockchain sprang up on us in 2009 or 2008 when the discussions were on the cryptography list. And that kind of stamped the future direction, if you like. It took over the notions that everybody had been talking about in the cryptography groups and the cyberpunk groups and so forth. and and created the scene as we know it today but basically using and building on the work that had been done in the 90s and also the 80s if you include david charm so so here we are
0: i'd like to kickstart our conversation with the topic of trust how trust is the bedrock for all business transactions and for any society to prosper until now most of our approach had been to trust people but people are corruptible. The issue is that the environment that we've been operating until now acts acts against the evolution of trust. Could you tell us how technology can help to solve or provide a different way for people to trust each other? And maybe in the context of blockchain, what game theory is and how having people to collaborate together actually benefits them in the long term rather than cheating.
1: Mm, Yeah. That that, that second part is where it's heading. The the first part, we're in trouble almost immediately because actually people trust and machines do not. So having machines take over some form form or part of the trust is a non-starter. It doesn't work. Consequently, what you have to do, and this is what I do in my book, You have to go back into uh, the depths of what trust is. And uh, people really haven't done this in the computer science field. The so-called trust business and the various efforts to try and look at this have not understood what it is that trust is. In my book, I go through and I do a deep dive and I come up with a model of what it is. Basically, it's a feedback loop. It's a machine that exists in the brain that basically allows a, a person to very quickly and very powerfully come to a decision on a particular proposal. And the particular proposal is probably similar to ones that uh, the person has seen many times before. So she updates her information based on this new proposal. And a very powerful, uh, if you like, program, which we would call a feedback loop, runs in the, the person's brain, which says, yes, I trust this proposal or I don't trust this proposal. So the problem that occurs there is once you've figured out that this thing is a, is a feedback proposal, I call it a, a risk-analysed-decide-reward loop, if I've got it right, R-A-D-R, Alice's R-A-D-R loop. Um, once we've decided that this particular machine exists, there's a question. It's a very serious question, but it might be trivial at first. And that is, where did it come from? And if you look at, um, you you start to think about that. How did this person come up with such a powerful capability to trust, which we can't model? The answer is, well, it's not easy, but you you can come up with a simple solution. And that is, look at a baby. A baby that is born today has no such capability to do trust at all. And they're pretty much defenseless against the odds. Uh, uh, and unaware. But between the baby at day zero and the adult at year 20, something happened to give the adult at 20 an ability to trust this fantastically complex and difficult machine that spins in her brain. So something happened between birth and adulthood. The third part of my book is to dive into that. What is it that happens? And it turns out that actually it's, it's basically all of growing up. It's everything we do as children, everything we do as parents to bring up a child is oriented towards giving that person the capabilities to be a full adult, which in my simplified view, just to make the presentation point clear, is how to trust. But everything we do in life, in interaction, is about how to trust. And you spend 20 years learning how to do that. And when you've done that, you are now a fully functioning adult. And when you think of it in those terms, from a computing perspective, there's no way we can replace that. We don't even understand it ourselves, let alone be able to write what happens. Most of us have indeed forgotten what happened in childhood. You go back to your earliest memories of trust. They don't exist. They're all gone. But you still have this model in your brain. The best way you could think of it is to say, oh, yes, an AI could do that. But even then, AI is just so limited in terms of the data that you can give it, it's never going to be able to compete with a person on this particular basis. So when it comes to the question of how we can use technology to do this, we can't replace trust. What we can do is try and understand what it is that people do in their daily lives and augment those particular processes. And that's actually what I've been working on for the last uh, 10 years or so. in in sort of directional terms, Uh, and that has, it's basically coming back to the notion that what we have to do is simulate the process of growing up within the family, the extended family, the small community, and so forth, and take the outcome of that, which is actually your brain is not only oriented towards trust all the time, it's oriented towards living in a small community. And once you understand that, you can make the leap to the, the sort of organizational framework, which would be useful in this context. And that is what we need to do is replicate the family. We need to find a person's groups and give them a digital context. And if you like, you can see things like blockchains as being digital groups. You can see DAOs as being digital groups. You can see all sorts of you know, Facebook rooms and chat rooms and so forth. They're all digital groups. But we need a digital group with a difference. We need one that's very small. It can't be more than, say, 20 or 30 people because after that, it starts to lose cohesion. And it, it also needs to be high trust because it turns out that the system of trust works only if you're in high trust. If you're isolated outside of high trust, it's not efficient. So you need to import the trust of real life into this group, and that's the hard part because actually, certainly in the West, we don't have those groups. In the developing world, we do have those groups and we can work with them, which is what I'm doing in essence, working with software for social savings groups in in the developing world, in the um, the emerging economies of Kenya and Africa and so forth. But to do that, we need to find those groups in the West if we're going to export it to the West. that's, That's kind of the, the short story of what the book is all about, understanding where this thing came from and figuring out how we can move forward to help it.
0: Moving on to audit, in 2009, you published a collection of seven articles on a new way of auditing, where you proposed to perform the check ourselves by relying on a community of volunteers without the need to appoint an external auditor. Back then, the world had not yet witnessed the birth of Ethereum or any other smart contracts platform. My question is twofold. First, has your vision changed? And secondly, how has smart contracts enabled your proposal to become a reality today?
1: Um. Yeah, so it's complex. I don't think my views have changed from that seven part cycle of audit discussion. And, and one thing I will say is that um, the end of that is actually a recasting of something that we developed back in the uh, 90s. In order to issue digital cash, we came up with the concept of five parties model. And it wasn't particularly well documented. You won't find it out on the net, or it, it was internally understood. And, The conclusion of five parties model was that the only way to do this efficiently—to issue digital cash or digital assets efficiently on the net and have it trustworthy—was to move it into such a domain such that the users could audit it themselves. They were the fifth party. The fifth party would sit there and look at all the information that's coming out. And what I'd done with that audit cycle was I'd started from a, a particular premise that audit is failing us, and I've worked through all these logical arguments as to why it's failing us and I'd also convince myself, back myself into a corner, by saying that actually these failures are, they're fatal to the body audit. You can't get away from this particular situation. In fact, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse over time. So you can't rely on audit anymore to do what it is you're thinking you're going to do, which means it has to be replaced. You have to bypass it. You have to come up with something better. And then I close that cycle by saying, yeah, the way to do this is to have people audit uh, the users to audit the system, which means you have to give them the the information. Now, what happened in 2009, of course, was the blockchain turned up and blockchain did precisely that. It gave everybody the access to all the transactions. And consequently, uh, if you like, blockchain is the experiment that proves or denies the hypothesis that this is the way forward with audit. You have to have the users enlisted as the auditors such that no external audit needs to do any work. Now, of course, it wasn't entirely like that. And there are, there are many difficulties with that discussion. But of course, that's what happens when you break some eggs. You, know, you, have, to, you have to actually see what happens. The second part of your question was about smart contracts and so forth. Now, smart contracts allowed you to do, if you like, flows of trade, which wasn't necessarily speaking to the question of audit, but certainly if you're doing smart contracts in the context of, say, Bitcoin or Ethereum or wherever, one of the blockchains that specializes in these things, then you now had a position where uh, all that information was available to auditors to review, whether they be individuals or professional auditors. So that certainly made that possible, but it's been remarkably slow to develop. Things like Ethereum haven't really moved the bar forward there, because I think in part because the the code itself is not interpretable. So you now need a, a very specialized type of person to read the code. And we know that software is buggy. We know that software is very hard to get right. And nobody's really cracked that problem. So what we're doing is we're putting a lot of load onto this software, which we know to be buggy. And that load comes up with a proposition that says, this can do this wonderful finance thing. But that finance thing collapses if there's a bug in the software. So we haven't really moved as far forward as we think in that respect. We have to figure out a way to both reduce the opacity of the software that is make it readable by more people and reduce the number of bugs to the point we can start relying on it so i think the the notion of five parties model or audit as everybody doesn't work with smart contracts yet it could in the future it does work with transactions straight transactions can be audited quite happily because they're all the same and you can rely on a particular piece of code that does that so so that's some way forward but not for smart contracts
0: And when you refer to the volunteers in practice, who who would those volunteers be? And
1: should they be incentivized as well and somehow paid? Yeah, so the primary pool of volunteers are the people who have skin in the game. These are the people holding the assets and they have they already have their incentive, which is they're hoping that their asset will be valuable in the future. And now what's happening is they find themselves holding this asset also holding an obligation to play their part. And obviously some will rise to that obligation and some won't. Many will free ride and so forth and so on. But one of the aspects that is going to happen here is that a particular asset becomes stronger if it's more strongly scrutinized. That which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And you see this with, for example, uh, Tether and the other stable coins and so forth. They faced a lot of scrutiny and they come out of that scrutiny a bit bloodied, a bit sore, but they seem to be getting stronger as time goes on. And if we keep that process up, keep pummeling away at them and auditing them and controlling them and requesting this information, requesting that information, eventually, hopefully, they will move from their current opaque situation, the unclear situation, to a more clear situation, a situation where the, the public can see what's going on. So it's it's certainly the, the case that the users, the holders, have their incentive to audit Could external parties do so? Well yes they can. The New York Attorney General did exactly that as an external party. she has no particular interest in holdings she didn't hold any any tether we assume but she does have a regulatory interest on behalf of the people in New York. So yeah anybody could do this we hope and they will have different reasons for doing it. The difference I think is that this is a chaotic process. We can't predict how much audit is going to happen, whereas with the old professional audit, we know precisely how much audit is going to happen. We know what the bill is. We know how long it's going to take. We know what the auditors are going to do, and pretty much we know what the audit is is going to say at the end. It's a a highly certain process at a macro view, whereas with public-based audits of uh, digital assets, that is not a certain process at all. You can imagine certain assets just don't get audited at all, and some get over-audited and beaten to death just through sheer attention.
0: When the auditors perform their audit, they always use a sampling approach, and therefore they can only provide reasonable and not absolute assurance on the financials. Meaning, auditors, in a way, they always have a get-out-of-jail-free card when financial disaster strikes. Now, with blockchain, we can audit 100% of transactions, we can have real-time data. So that begs the question, will we finally be able to issue an audit opinion that's where we state that the financials are accurate rather than they provide a true and fair view? And maybe a follow-up question would be, would that then signal the demise of the financial auditor?
1: yes Uh, so it's true in a sense that with the entire transaction history there in front of you you can come to solid conclusions which are replicable by any other party because you've got the same data where you get into trouble with the, the the notion of the future of the auditor is that even though you can do this part perfectly if you like as a simplification this part is just the first layer in like a five layer stack. And the next layer up is what is the interpretation of these transactions? So if you look at a, a blockchain transaction, a payment or something like that, you can see it's a payment, but you don't necessarily know what it's for. Now you need to put that into a chart of accounts. You need to interpret that as being the purchase of something, the payment of a service, the remittance of a tax or, or whatever it is. and all of those particular types of things have, shall we say, um, values and rules and equations and all sorts of policies about which you come up with as, as you analyze this. And this is really the domain of the accountant. What we were talking about for, first, the transactions themselves, is really the domain of the bookkeeper. And in this sense, um, TEA, triple entry accounting, is a little bit of a misnomer. It really should be triple entry bookkeeping. Rather than triple-entry accounting, and funnily enough, the the guy who worked on triple-entry bookkeeping was really talking about accounting. So that both of us crossed our wires. Uh, A I can't remember his other name. He called Ajiri. Yuri. Yeah. Yuri. Yuri. Yeah. Yeah. So what's happening is we're taking that first layer in, and we're solidifying it. We're turning it from opinion to fact. We can be pretty damn sure we've got the facts of the first layer right. But then comes the interpretation on top in the second layer. And and then it goes up until you get full consulting right on the top layer. So all of these things are pretty untroubled by triple entry accounting. If anything, what it does is it frees the professional auditor and the professional accountant from the drudgery of bookkeeping, gives them a much firmer base on which to work. And then allows you to reach higher, more efficiently into those higher levels, into the into the semantics, into the meanings of what the business is about. So I don't see that this necessarily gets rid of the accountant or the auditor. What it does do is it simplifies the audit. Now, if you're doing a simple audit, you're just trying to come up with a fair and uh, proper view of the accounts, and you come up with this perfect view of the accounts from there. You can reduce the cost of the audit. But the, the business of audit, is certainly as far as the big four are concerned and the medium-sized, the second-tier firms, is about establishing a, a toe into the door, a foothold, such that you can start selling higher services. That particular mission remains untouched. You know, it, it's unimpinged. It's the, the future of the auditor, I think, is still pretty good.
0: A flow of questions is... With blockchain, I mean, the narrative is that we can really audit 100% of the transactions. And would that, will that really be possible to continuously audit 100% of the transactions and really not have to perform sampling?
1: In, in terms of the transaction quality, yes, it's possible. And you'll, you'll see people doing it already on the blockchain. The people who run nodes and pull each transaction off as it goes into each block are doing, if you like, real time, 100%. It's not sampling anymore, it's surveying, I guess, over the entire space. But again, when you come to do your audit process or your, your higher level review process, you're asking particular questions. And those questions will still pertain. What are these transactions about? So if you like, you, you're going to see a sense where people will start sampling the transactions requesting the known parties to provide more information on those transactions and just making sure that the answers are correct alternatively you could see a, a much worse approach which is what the US congress have just approved in the infrastructure bill they have demanded that anybody who receives crypto over 10000 and that's in the aggregate summing up over the previous you know many months or so then reports it to the treasury so now if you like you get a sampling by treasury of all crypto accounts or all crypto transactions that have touched an America. So there, you, you sampling is still an issue, and of course, the problem with that sort of sampling is it's inordinately expensive. So it takes the shine out of blockchain, which of course is pleasing for some. Competitive institutions like banks are quite happy to load those sort of uh, costs, deadly costs onto uh, blockchain. But at the end result is that you now actually. You're putting the cost to the forefront. The cost of doing those sort of filing, and then there's the indirect cost, knowing that somebody's now observing what you're doing directly and it's very interested in it, will will squash the innovative spirit of what's happening on blockchain. So this sort of public or agency sampling can still be done, but you, you've got to be mindful of the efficiency of what you're doing to the, the infrastructure.
0: I also want to understand the role of the accountancy firms or what role they will have in the future with blockchain. I will quote what Henry, I hope I'm getting his name right, Henry R. Slanian, the PwC Global Crypto Leader. So he said, all the Bitcoin was designed with a trustless ideology. The reality is that the industry still requires trusted entities to catalyze the development of the ecosystem. Of course, I I do agree with the the part that behind the decentralized blockchain apps, we we, we do have centralized institutions building them. But my question is, with Bitcoin, the narrative is that we won't need banks anymore. With decentralized audit, will we still need decentralized audit providers in the future?
1: Yes. So you've got to be very careful when somebody says the narrative is X. It's going to kill the banks. It's going to kill the Fed or whatever. This is just a narrative. And to a large extent, it's not really found in the invention. It's found in the hopes of the people that have come in, been attracted. Finally, we have a tool that will do X, and I believe it will do X, but actually we've yet to see that. And the history of inventions says that typically what happens with all of these inventions is that they appear to allow for great decentralization and great dispersal of power. But in practice, what happens is once we get going with it, we find that there are economies of scale in the invention. And the old, the, st- the same old institutions start popping up and taking over. If you look at, for example, the size of the exchanges that are now doing most of the exchange on blockchain, they're huge. And if, if you think this is going to take over the banks, you've got to kind of factor into the fact that these institutions that have now taken over large parts of the blockchain space the ecosystem are huge and therefore they will be shall we say attractive to government regulators and they'll end up looking like banks they will become the banks so yeah what was the other part of your question
0: the other part was would we need the centralized audit providers in the future if audit can be more and more decentralized
1: so one of the things about audit is that it is commissioned by somebody for somebody to rely upon. And if you, if you look at the financial audit that is done over, say, stock exchange listed companies, it's a little bit of a rare beast because it's commissioned by the company, but it's deigned or mandated to be reliable to the investor public. And this is done by, if you like, uh, precedent in, in court cases. Particular court cases have said that even though the subscriber, the shareholder, did not pay for the audit, they are entitled to rely on it because it was done for that purpose. But then if you look at other audits, most of the other audits that go on aren't done for that purpose. Most of the audits that are done are done because There's a standard that everybody has to play to to pay homage to in order to move forward in their business requirements. It's mandated by some regulatory agency or other, and it's done for the purposes of that regulatory agency or other. So, for example, in most um, small companies, if they're doing an audit, it's because they're mandated uh, to do that by the government, because the tax person wants to be able to read that audit and say okay i have a fair view over what's going on now we can assess the tax or it's the bank that says you have to do an audit it's not there for the purposes of the public if you like so when you want to look at what happens with order in the context of blockchain the question is who wants the audit and if they want the audit they can go and get it and they can pay for it and they can refine it according to their particular demands so I think what you're going to do, what we're going to see is move away from this, this if you like, obsession from audits being something that the public gets to look at, demand, and read to more precise audits which are done by a particular agency for a particular purpose. And that particular purpose may or may not have the public's interest in mind. So, for example, if it's if it's a bank-driven process, they haven't got the public in mind at all. They're concerned about their risk exposure. If it's the government, certainly one branch of the government is concerned about taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So you'll see a migration from this notion of order is for everybody to order is for me.
0: Moving on to triple entry accounting, how has your vision of triple entry accounting as it was constituted in 2005 when you published your white paper changed? And if so, what's changed about it till today?
1: I, I think it stood the test of time as a concept. The views that are expressed in the paper, some of the paper was written with uh, Todd Boyle as well. So, so parts of it include his views. The views overall haven't, haven't changed. Where, where I think... What has changed is there's been a lot more experimentation out in the field. And one particular thing that has emerged is a much stronger view of uh, what we call the Russian dolls paradigm. And that is where we take the general concept. It was outlined in the paper, but not in any particular depth, whereby you have a starting transaction. Maybe it's an invoice or maybe it's an offer. And then there's an acceptance and then there might be an invoice and then there might be a payment. So you you have this sort of series of different events in a cycle of trade. Each of those delivers a packet of information. And if we take the first packet of information and sign it, we've now created that fact. You know, you have been offered. Take the second one, I accept. Okay, so if you incorporate the full data of the first one, you've now got the point where The second one is a triple entry piece of data because it incorporates the first one. You can throw away the first one now, it's all kept inside the second one and we both agree to what's happened. So it's become a fact. And then as you move to the third packet, you do the same trick again. You include the second one in the third one. It's all signed. We both agree that that's what's happened and this dominates the previous information. We throw away the second one and then when we get to the fourth and the fifth and so forth, we do this packaging this like an onion we're growing an onion out layer by layer or russian dolls as it was labeled by uh who labeled it as that i forget it'll come to me um so this whole notion of having transactions build up creates a much richer set of facts And, and that although it was laid out in the paper i think that's what has become quite valuable to the people who have gone into this process and started using the triple entry accounting concept. Uh, You don't see this so much in blockchain, but you do see it in, for example, R3's Corda, the way it works with its its state machine that moves forward and gets signed off each time. You do see it, you saw it with the Open Bazaar experiment to basically do an eBay on blockchain, which basically worked, but uh, couldn't build the traction and you also see it in security programming in the if if you imagine a big operation like an exchange there's multiple stages in which case in which the request comes in at the beginning and then it goes through multiple checks and what you want to do is have each of those checks treat it as triple entry accounting take the request that they're given wrap it into their receipt sign it off and send it on to the next check And have it grow as it gets to the end so that by the time you get to the end of the process, when you're just about to launch a transaction to the blockchain, you've now got this big packet of solid information that is signed off by multiple checkers protecting your behind in the sense that you know precisely what's going on. You can audit that entire chain in that one piece of data. And that gives you, if you like, a much more solid infrastructure. Inside an exchange, it makes it much harder to hack, for example, because to hack something like that, you've actually got to hack each key of the the process, depending on the way it's done.
0: Next, most people have not heard of triple entry accounting. They're familiar with double entry accounting. If we had to compare double entry, triple entry, so double entry, we've seen how using double entry accounting approach had led to all these financial scandals, we know what the limitations of double entry is. Why double entry leads to, why can it lead to fraud? And how does triple entry accounting help to prevent these frauds and failures from taking
1: place? Yes. So to understand double entry accounting, there's a couple of things that can help there. Firstly, double entry accounting creates a view of the accounts. And the accounts in this respect are a picture of the of what the firm is doing, but they are fundamentally created by one person, which is the firm, and therefore the firm can decide to create, if you like, a poor picture or a bad picture. It can create a, a false picture or a deceptive picture. And and there's a, there's the old Italian accounting joke that says. I I keep three sets of books, one for the taxman, one for my family, and one for myself. And obviously, the one for myself is the one that's actually closer to the truth, but even then, it might not be. And you can do that with double entry. You can happily do that with double entry because you create the books and you decide what goes in there. Why then does, does double entry work? That goes back into, if you like, you've got to go back to the the old family firms in Venice and the, the, the city-states of Italy and so forth, the problem they had was that whoever created the accounts was then in charge of the money to a large extent, which meant that if you gave it to an outsider, an employee, they would pocket some money. They'd add a few entries to cause some money to go in a particular direction which they'd organize an accomplice. They'd steal the money. So you ended up in a situation where the only people you could trust to do the accounts was yourself or a member of your family. That's kind of a little bit difficult or a slave. And actually slaves were more trusted than people in your family. But we don't have that option anymore, so that's cut out. So you actually had a very serious limitation on who you could trust to do the accounts now what double entry did was it created this internal mechanism whereby one entry confirmed another entry and these two entries together gave a trail of how the money moved and what this did was it circumscribed it stopped multiple frauds it stopped the easy frauds whereby you just add a number and suddenly you can take out cash you could now rely on an external trained person to come in and prepare those accounts. And you could now rely on another trained person to come in and check the accounts and they didn't know each other. So one would cover the other. So you'd suddenly freed yourself from the limitations of trust in accounting. You didn't need to employ your family members on this anymore. You could employ professionals who who knew the path, were trained in it and so forth, and they didn't have an opportunity to defraud you. Hence, what happened after that, was that the family firms then grew and became businesses, as in serious shareholder businesses with thousands of employees could only be managed with double-entry accounting. But you still have the problem that double-entry accounting was a viewpoint put together by whoever decides which transactions go in. And if you look at things like Enron, Enron had pretty good accounting, but it was holding a lot of information out. The the real clear example was Bearings Bank. And that was when the uh, the guy who was uh, running at Nickleeson, he was running the Singapore office. He was not only the trader, the, the chief trader out on the floor, he was also running the back office and managing the software that kept the accounts. So what he did was he created a special account, 88888, 58, if I got that right. And he shoved his losses into that account. And it was secret. Nobody knew to look there. So all of the accounts appeared as though things were okay and he was making profits. But in fact, he was making huge losses. In this case, one person was running the accounts and deciding what to present. Now, switch to triple entry. What happens with triple entry is you don't decide what is an entry. You confer with your counterparty and the two of you together create the same entry. And then that gets stamped by this third party the the Ivan or the blockchain or whatever you want to call it such that the three of you have now decided in consensus that this is the entry so if you think about Nick Leeson he can't do that anymore because his entries are all signed by external parties so in order for him to carry on his fraud he would have had to have run the fraud with another company And that's inordinately more difficult because now you've got two companies which are conducting a fraud together. Whereas before you had one person running the back office, conducting the fraud by himself, presenting the transactions. So you've moved to the point where you're establishing, you're no longer working with opinion. My opinion is this transaction happened. No, what you're doing is you're creating a fact. This transaction did happen because the other guy in the other company decided it's happened. And the other guy in the other company has exactly the same view in reverse. And we got it stamped by a third party. So we've moved from opinion to fact. And that, if you like, it makes it much more difficult to do bearing style frauds, which were previously, if you like, controlled by strict rules as to separation of concerns. The guy running the back office couldn't be the guy running the front office. That's how they controlled it. And now you don't need to worry about that because you're actually controlling it by Fixing facts with your counterparty, which is, if you think in in banking terms, it's another bank. So now the only opportunity is for banks to collude together to create false trades. And that's a much higher barrier. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah. I wanted to speak a little bit about regulation and whether regulation can be. There seems to be a little conflict with digital assets with the very nature of digital assets, how they are open, transparent, offers real-time information, and the way we report, meaning we report on a half-yearly, quarterly, or yearly basis. What should be the approach of regulators when regulating digital assets and how they can switch to this backward-looking approach that we currently have to more real-time regulation?
1: Well, there are things that they can do, but they are caught in their own, their own world. And in a lot of cases, the reason they're not doing a good job is because they simply don't have the knowledge of what is possible. So, for example, we can probably agree that digital assets, as they're constituted today on the blockchain and so forth and so on, are triple entry accounts. So you have a good, proper 100% record of everything that's going on. So what do you see? You see this notion that uh, because we use a system of pseudonyms, it's not entirely obvious who is doing this. And you see the regulators panic at this absence of information. Instead of going deeper and understanding that actually all of the exchanges have a very powerful view on who's doing what, they insist on collecting identity data. So this is what's happened in mm. the U.S. You now have one of the counterparties having to uh, report on the other counterparty, and this this was you know mostly unnecessary because if you go to the big companies that do analysis of the blockchain, they actually have uh, quite powerful capabilities to trace transactions all the way through to various exchanges. And if you want to do sampling, what you can do is simply request that sort of analysis over certain things, and then go to the exchanges to fill in the dots. And that way you can get most of the information you need. If you, But if you turn around and panic and say that everybody must be identified, you've now shifted the entire thing across to a full mass financial surveillance system. And the problem with that is that it, it doesn't really work for anybody. Because once you know that you're, in jail and the panopticon is looking at you for everything that you do you stop doing things and you either move to a platform which is going to protect your privacy or you literally stop doing things and the economy slows down and this has been the outcome if you like the the unmeasured outcome that has happened because of fatf regulation they've added more and more information on it's it's thrown more sand into the wheels at every turn And slowly, the advanced economies have started to carry the cost, which they can get away with if they're rich and there's spare capacity in the economy. But you can't keep doing that without getting a cost to the entire economy. So so there are ways you can be much more intelligent about this as a regulator. You could simply specify things like, yes, you do triple entry accounting. That would be great. Create these facts, put them on the blockchain. We're very happy with that. Another thing you could do is you could say that a platform that is constituted to do something where that something is known and um, has a purpose, such as a DeFi operation or an ICO or an NFT, must have a contract. And this is actually a very fair approach because somebody's going out there and making a claim, and that person stands to earn a lot of money. Other people are going to rely on that claim. And they stand to also lose a lot of money because a lot of this stuff can be fraud, straight fraud. Some of it is honest. Some of it, which is honest, ends up going down the tubes because of uh, just general failure modes. And then some of it is completely dishonest from the get-go. Now, what we want to do is make it harder for those dishonest parties. So what we want to do is say, okay, what you've done is made a claim that is now a contract and that sticks on you. So issue that contract up front. And that, if you like, is what the Ricardian contract does. You create the contract as a set of words. You make that finding as to, or you make that claim as to what it is your platform, your wonderful DeFi invention is going to do. And you lock that into every transaction that follows with the hash of the contract. Now, regulators could simply turn around and say, yeah, you can do that, but you better post your contract. And your contract should be locked into the transactions. And your contract should identify who you are, and if anything goes wrong, we know where to come to. And if you like, this this is kind of interesting. If you look at uh, regulatory affairs, they often start from from the position of exactly that, but they do it using old world technology. They do it with a regulatory filing. You have to do you have to file a form D or a form E or a form XYZ, and you have to file it to the regulator. Now that's because in the old times we didn't have a way to share information other than to send it to a central point and then out to all the investors or the purchasers or the beneficiaries but now we do you can simply post your contract onto the blockchain so all you need to do is pass a regulation that says everything you do is contractually significant if you put a platform out there everybody needs to see the contract and from there regulation follows because we can simply apply the old standards as and when we need them once we've got the starting contract if you like the recording contract is a, a decentralized filing it already does all that is needed of the regulator's filing system in a decentralized fashion in a cheaper fashion in a more efficient fashion could
0: you speak a little bit more about the recording contract how
1: it works in conjunction with the triple entry accounting framework It goes hand in hand. Yes. um, If you think about transactions and so forth, transactions are pursuant to contracts. They follow contracts. If we decide we are going to do some transactions, we've actually established a contract. And what the Ricardian contract does is simply take that contract and instantiate it into a document in a fashion that can do approximately two things. One is the hash of the document can go straight into every transaction. So anytime you look at a transaction, you do your hundred percent auditing or so forth. You just look for the thing that says this is the contract. You take that hash, you go search for that, and find that document, and now you've got the picture of what it is that is trying to be done. And the second thing is that the contract is machine readable. So now you can insert various parameters. So if you're if you're issuing a U.S. dollar, for example, in the contract you'll have a type equals currency, and you'll have Symbol equals dollar and three letters equals USD, and you'll have um, decimalization equals two. And then what happens is the software, when it sees the transaction, can immediately pop up and say, Well, this is a payment of a hundred dollars using this particular contract from this person to this person. It completes the picture. So, if you look at, for example, uh, blockchain transactions, typically what happens is they have an amount, they have a, a to and a from. So, the payer and the payee, but they're vague on the what. And this clarifies the what. It makes the what very clear just by looking at the hash, finding the contract behind that hash, pulling out those fields, and you pop up a richness in the information. So, in, in terms of a straight digital asset, the Ricardian contract, if you like, carries the database inside, which would alternatively populate things like ERC20s and so forth all of that software can now be completely automated.
0: Before we continue, we'll take a quick commercial break from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Audit Chain, the world's first decentralized continuous audit and real-time reporting protocol. Some of you listening might be aware that I previously used to be an external auditor. Now, traditional audit methodology focuses on materiality and not accuracy. We are constrained by time and cannot audit 100% of the transactions and therefore we perform sampling. But the emerging technology of blockchain is here to disrupt the profession and solve the pain points of audit. Audit chain decentralizes audit and uses an independent assurance methodology that automates auditing tasks and continuously audits 100% of the transactions. With more and more automation, accountants will increasingly find themselves becoming redundant. If you're a forward-thinking CPA or chartered accountant and want to participate and be in touch with the latest developments from audit chain in decentralizing the audit profession, you should apply for membership by visiting the DCarb Alliance Association at decarborg join. For the remaining part of our conversation, we'll move a little bit away from accounting and auditing. And I want to speak about your book that you recently published. Mm-hmm. This book is the combination of years of work and research around the concept of identity. Yeah, I want to ask you first: there Why did
1: you write the book?
0: <laughs> it's here.
1: <laughs> oh, you've got it.
0: No, not yet. <laughs> oh.
1: um,
0: it's not yet. Uh, it, it's not been published through a publishing house. If
1: If I'm no, it's entirely self-published. Uh, self-published okay yeah we have a little team that's been working on it for six months now we finally got it printed about a month ago is it already available pdfs and ebooks and uh, the other one mobis are coming
0: okay all right all right what i want to ask you is why did you write the book and what are the different schools of thoughts around identity that you've identified the relations, how relationships and being part of a community shapes our identities, and what's the concept of shamans, and if you could further elaborate on it. Hmm.
1: Well, that's the entire book, so it'll <laughs> take a while, while to book. get through that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I I was in Kenya in the early part of uh, the last decade, so 2011 to 2013, I guess. And I discovered the concept of Chammers there, and I realized it had had a direct relationship to the software architectures I'd been working with. It was so close and exciting that I decided to stay. And we, a uh, small group of us, set up a startup to write software for Chamas, And that, that worked. We got all of my software up and going on the Android phone. We were able to do transactions. We were able to show how they could account for their information. They were happy with the one test we managed to get done. Unfortunately, as many startups, we ran out of cash, had to leave the country for various reasons, et cetera, et cetera. So it kind of died at that point. But what I discovered was that more than the transactions that were happening in these channels, perhaps I should explain channels more deeply at this point. What happens is, The thing you've got to bear in mind, which is very tough for the Western audience, we we call them weird people, Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. These these people are completely locked in the bubble and they cannot see outside it. Uh, The Western person arrives in these countries and brings all of the Western prescriptions in their head and tries to impose the, the order onto chaos and fails every time, fails every time. But what was interesting is the difference between the, the West, the rich West and the developing countries. I think this is fairly consistent. It's a hypothesis, if you like, but I'd like to, you know, have this proven by somebody else. The difference is the level of corruption. In the West, the level of corruption isn't that high. You have outbreaks for it. You can, you can identify the countries which have completely corrupt. Political systems, but the life in the street is not corrupt. Or you can have it the other way around. For example, the life in the street can be corrupt at a certain extent, but the the economy gets keeps going. That's that's the case for um, for example for Mexico, where the the street corruption has risen because the police were hit by the war on drugs and basically destroyed. The civil society, the, the trust lines were destroyed by the Americans' war on drugs. But different corruption exists all the way across the West and you can pinpoint it. People do surveys of this sort of stuff. The problem you get into the developing world is it's not just there's a bit of corruption here and a bit of corruption there, it's everywhere. And this corruption changes the way people live. They are in a battle for survival and they can't necessarily get out of that survival. But they still and this is where it gets interesting is it's the women who look at this. They still have, if you like, things to do, especially mothers with children. Having got themselves into that position, they've got the responsibility for the children. And everybody wants the children to have a better life than the shitty life that they're stuck in. So they fight. The women fight. And they want to get their children into school. Uh, the, The schools there, you basically have to pay for them. There is a public school system, but it's basically denuded of funds. So it ends up being daycare. To get ahead, you've got to get money and get your children into a private school so that they can actually learn something and come out at a better stage as they reach adulthood. To do that, however, you've got to do two payments every year for each child, one in January and the other one is like late July, early August. And that's for the big part of the school year and then the little part of the school year. So these are big payments. Now, the problem you have is saving money is very hard if you're surrounded by corruption, because firstly, your husband takes the money and goes and drinks it away. Secondly, if the husband doesn't do it, the children will come and take the money and spend it on sweets and things. If that doesn't happen, your neighbor turns up and borrows because she's got a problem. Or relatives turn up, and or, or, or it's just a long list of people that turn up, so it's impossible to save. It's really very hard. But they have a solution, and that's the Chama. What they do is they come together as a group, and the group is typically like 10, 12 minimum, up to maybe 30. They save in a group, and they protect in a group. So when you go to your Chama meeting uh, as a woman, typically women, you'll have saved for the last, say, three weeks or so, and you pay your money into the Chama and the Chama then has the money. Now you no longer have the money. So your husband can't take it, your children can't take it, and the neighbors can't borrow it. The neighbors can go and join their own Chama if they want to loan, this sort of thing. So now as a group, they have formed, if you like, an iron ring around themselves to keep the thieves off. So now they can save. And what happens is they'll save in this process, and they will uh, get to the point where they can pay for the school fees, or they'll buy that new thing that they needed, maybe a refrigerator or a new gas ring, so that they can cook or whatever it is. They now have a savings mechanism. They're now in the financial scene. They are. They have a financial institution. So you often um, you often see the NGOs of the West and the. You know, the World Bank and the IMF and all these sort of people saying, oh, my gosh, people are excluded from the financial system. They're wrong. They're completely wrong. What's happened is these people have made their own financial system and they've done it themselves. Sisters are saving for themselves. So they had this situation. Now, I walked in there and said, oh, we could do accounting for these guys. Yeah. And it worked. It was right. We could do accounting for these guys. But what I also discovered was that we, we ran a charmer for a while and we participated in it because we wanted to you know, get to the inside of it, feel what it was like and what, what are we missing? You know, we're always worried about the fact that we're entering into somebody else's world and we'll just make some huge blunder and it'll be useless. So we ran a charmer. What we discovered was they really care for their charmers. And the Chama meeting is like the highlight of their dull days. They're trading, trading, trading and working and washing and getting kids to school. But then they have their Chama meeting and suddenly they're with their peers. They're not an isolated person with many troubles. They're one of a powerful financial institution. They own their own financial future. And they feel very empowered, very happy with their Chamas. And after our venture with the, uh, the Chama software and so forth, we knew that this was really part or it was the whole story of what was going on, but we didn't necessarily understand it. So I spent a lot of time looking around the West trying to find a Chama. Couldn't find it. You know, You can find footy clubs and so forth, but they don't have skin in the game. It's there for sport. You can find church groups. You can find this group, that group. None of them are like the Chama. So I, I got to thinking about it, and, and one time we were doing some, um, a sort of community thing, a Robin Hood community thing. This is um, a little collective that was organized in London at the time. And people were talking about identity, and I realized, actually, what's happening inside the Chama is real identity. And what people are talking about in the West and financial systems and regulatory affairs, that's not real identity. So I I worked out as a sort of flash of inspiration. We're talking about four different things, and the first of which is the state. The state turns around and says, you are this name and this number and this passport and these solid identifications. And it does it for its convenience. And it calls that an identity, but it's not really an identity. It's what it is. It's a control mechanism. And, you know, we can... There's a lot of study on this and so forth, but this is how the state sees the world. It has to homogenize everybody into one unique person. And once that person is numbered, then we can move forward to enforce our grand scheme on them. And then there's another view, which is somewhat distinct. That's the, the corporation. Uh, and now you think about, for example, Facebook and Amazon and Apple and so forth, they don't try and turn the people into single homogenous things with a number. What they try and do is turn the person into a, a great big pot of data that allows the corporation to sell stuff, allows to get into the person's psyche and figure out what this person is going to buy next, because we want to get there first and sell that thing. Uh, so this is un- unlike the state, which collects very small pieces of data and tries to make them very strong. The financial corporations collect huge amounts of weak data and aggregate it using AI and so forth. So, and they call that identity as well. And to an extent, you know, the Facebook, uh, the Facebook concept, is the closest we've come to capturing a person's identity in the West. But it, but unfortunately, it goes against the the individual. Uh, there's nothing in there for the individual other than. You know, the free gift of talking to your mates. Hmm, Interesting. Meanwhile, sell, sell, sell. And thinking about this, then there's another form of identity, and that's the one we actually do think is our identity. It's what's in my head. It's what's in your head about who we are. And we've we've spent our entire life with this thing, whatever it is, and it's sitting there. And um, it's interesting. If you think of of it from a computer science point of view, actually, I don't want programs entering into my brain and interfering with my identity. It's the one secret I've still got. So that's a completely separate thing to what the states think of identity and the financial institutions think of identity. But then there's another one, and this is what came out of the Chamas. They, uh, the women go to the Chama meeting because they want to be part of something, and that part of something is a shared experience and uh, this form of identity is not in myself it's in you looking at me when i go to my chama meeting i am seen and participate with 20 other women or so and therefore my identity is what they say i am i'm part of a, a joint identity and this whole thing about the chamas and so forth that we were experiencing and viewing and participating in and building software for gave us a very, this very strong thing that actually they have found identity in the chama in such a strong fashion. And so, out of that process, identifying these four types of identity, I realised that what we want to do is capture that last part. We want to capture the chama's identity, and the only way we can do that is to say, okay, what can we do in a computer science fashion? And that is when you and I do something, so today we're doing a podcast, you and I can create a data item, a datum, and have that piece of data link you and myself together and we sign it or whatever, and that creates a piece of information we can then turn into our chamber identity. But then if we do that, that can be very powerful. But am I going to allow that piece of data to go out into the wild west of computing and so forth will i let facebook in to spy on it, on our interactions no i'm not going to do that uh, who, who am i going to let do this and the answer is who i trust i will hand the piece of data across and you might hand the data across to me if we trust each other to do this process so that's why the book is constructed in four parts the first part is about what is identity the second part is okay What is trust? Because having found identity, we now have seen a limitation. We're only going to share the really useful identity with those that we trust. So now we need to know what trust is. And having gone through that, we discussed that earlier. This trust is a big machine in the brain that seems to be able to do these things. The question being, well, how did we figure that out? Because a baby doesn't have it, an adult does have it. Part three is about this notion of, okay, where did the trust machine come from? which goes into the whole side of upbringing of a child, the context of tribes, anthropology, if you like, how did humans evolve as small communities? And different animals have done this as well, such that everybody knows each other in the small tribe. And we get to this sort of conclusion, if you like, that identity works in the context of a small group. And this is all informed by my thoughts about the Chambers. Once I found the notions, the anthropological notions of tribes of people is how humanity has developed and evolved. The brain is organized this way. We have uh, things like Dunbar's number. Uh, Robin Dunbar did um, experimental evidence on um, various primates, apes and monkeys and so forth. And he discovered a correlation between the brain size and the size of the tribe that they worked in. And consequently, the bigger the brain you have, the more people you can have in your tribe. And it turns out that the human's tribe at the brain size level is about 150. In computer science terms, we have 150 slots in our head for people that we know very well and trust. So we have this very strong stake in the ground that says actually what we're about is small tribes. And that's why the channel made sense. The Chama is a small tribe, and it's actually linked to the way our brain has evolved over millennia, many millennia. And and that's what the book is about. And if you like, it leads leads the world with a teaser because they've got it and we haven't got it. So what comes next?
0: And where can people order
1: or pre-order the book right now? That's not entirely possible. Okay. <laughs> the, book, the book is in printed form. And when we get the PDF, uh, the PDF will be posted. The PDF, the Mobi, the uh, the ebook will be posted. It won't be for sale. It'll just be downloaded. So All right. I'll, I'll get you those links as soon as we get them.
0: All right, perfect. One of the follow-up questions I had on identity is on the metaverse, on how we now apparently moving into this new era of our evolution. We've been developing our online identities for many years now. Social, for example, social media is one of the places we go to manifest these online identities. How do you see these digital identities evolving now with the metaverse, given that it seems like even now our physical appearances won't even matter anymore. Who will we be then in the metaverse?
1: Mm. Well, it's it's difficult to predict. On the one hand, the thing we say about our real identity is that we protect it. And we do so in certain in certain ways. We all have personas, if you like. I put on my official persona for a podcast. You put on your friendly persona when you go to a party, this sort of thing. So when we go into the metaverse. And as it happens with Facebook and so forth, Twitter, it's only a very small slice of who we are that appears in those things. So in essence, what we're doing is reserving, we're reserving 99% of ourselves for ourselves and our close chums, friends, family, and so forth. Now, following on from that, if you've got multiple different competing places, you tend to use them for different purposes. You don't duplicate yourself across each of those and be the same because that's, that's kind of a bit weird to do that. What you would do is you'd have a slightly different personality in each of these places. So in terms of the metaverse uh, and so forth, yes, we are discarding our skin and putting on a skin that we would like to be, but we would be capable of being one thing in one metaverse and a completely different thing in another metaverse. And, and this would be a normal behavior. Um, it, it's normal. In fact, it's it's inbuilt and it's uh, a part of the psychology of growing up. Fantasizing about yourself in uh, a certain context, a certain story, is what children do. This is why we have dolls, for example. Dolls are all about the child fantasizing about this doll playing a certain role and therefore turning the doll and the child into a family of some sort. And, and this goes on, if you like, if you if you think about modern cinema and so forth, we fantasize ourselves as being part of the story. The, the better cinema gets, the more we are involved now that we move to double-sided things like metaverse and social media and so forth. We are now part of the story. We are now fantasizing about who we want to be. So we will see an explosion of, if you like, of people exploring who they want to be. I am Ming the Merciless or... And and I can create that and be that and modify that and so forth. Um, Now, is that a problem? Not really. It is a problem if you've got an outside agenda. So, for example, Facebook have always wrestled with this. They always wanted one account, one person. And the reason they wanted that was because they wanted more accurate data to sell as advertising. Governments want one person, one persona, because they can't conceive of the alternative. And to be fair, they don't want to give two subsidies to the same person so that they've got some ability there, but they also don't want to punish the wrong person. So you know, it becomes very incisive with the state, less so with Facebook. So, so there's going to be, if you like, a sense of experimentation as to how we go. It, it would obviously be a complete disaster if the regulators were to insist that personas were singular and unique to people, because now that would take away the possibilities of fantasy and exchange and so forth. Yeah, that's a long rambling reply. I I forget whether we've actually covered the topic or not. No, it's not. (laughs)
0: We're nearing the end of the podcast, but one of the topics I like to speak about is educating oneself in blockchain. With everything that we've spoken about, What are the new skills and knowledge do you believe the financial auditor or the traditional auditor will need to have to navigate through this blockchain transition and prepare for the future of
1: work? Interesting. In terms of a financial auditor or an accountant, I I think they're not going to need much. They're going to need a little bit of, if you like, the structure of the blockchain, how the blocks work how the UTXO set works, how a transaction is formed out of that. It's a little harder when you start getting into smart contracts because they are too variable. Somebody comes up with a new scheme for a smart contract and it just doesn't follow the old scheme, so everybody's at sea. But I think fundamentally what is going to ease this knowledge burden is tools. So somebody is going to come up with a tool that presents the Blockchain transactions in a metaphor that looks more or less like what they already know. And once that is done, you're fine with a little bit of understanding about how it's happening behind the scenes. You can start using all your classical tools uh, or classical skills. So I don't think the bar is is that high for reskilling. I think the bar is higher for retooling. And once that tooling is done. You're going to be in much the same position. You're going to be able to scan and follow and so forth. And
0: do you have any books or resources that you recommend the most to beginners to learn about blockchain? Books, it can also be fiction books.
1: Yeah. There was a very good book called Cryptonomicon written in uh, the late 90s. Neil Is Stevenson?
0: It the same author as Snow Crash.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that was interesting because it actually captured in a story, and a very elegant and, shall we say, deep and descriptive story, the processes that we were already doing with the Egold company, uh, understanding how all that worked was well put in, in that particular book. He got it pretty much completely right and it wasn't if you like the funny thing was it was interpreted as science fiction but we were already doing it so it was quite an exciting book to read for that reason In in so the only book i've come across which i think is quite good is bitcoin for beginners i think it's called but i don't have a copy so i can't i I can't give you the recommendation directly i can get it to you later in terms of what you read yeah, i can't think of anything else it's Uh, Like any new industry, and it is a new industry, there are layers and depths. It's not easy to get an overview. What you've kind of got to do is bounce around and find something that you understand a little bit and dive into that. And then you use that as a bridge to everything else. So, yeah, there's no easy way to get into blockchain.
0: Before we go, is there anything else you'd like to add? Any closing thoughts on how... The accounting auditing industry can embrace blockchain, what they should be thinking, especially because of a lot of companies have tried to to implement triple entry accounting, have failed. What message would you have for them?
1: So the, the classical way that people approach this problem is they say, what's the use case? And I think that's a very difficult ask with triple entry accounting. Because it's the same thing as saying, what's the use case for accounting? Well, it's accounting. It runs through everything. So it isn't a use case. It's part of the the substrate, if you like. It's on that substrate we will then build other use cases. So one thing I I would say is that when you're working with transactions, and especially the, the obvious example here is exchanges, the way you should be doing it is to think in triple entry terms and to, if you like, line up your checks as a process such that the first agent that does the first check treats that as a packet to sign and then pass that on to the next one. And the next one will then wrap that in its packet and send it on. So you end up with the Russian doll protocol. And what this does is it creates, if you like, a bulletproof chain of evidence, which is also very hard to track, to, not to track, to hack. This improves your security. And I don't think anybody's really doing that as yet, but it is very powerful because if you can extend it out to the user, what it means is you can't do a transaction until you've got the signed request from the user. So it pushes your security boundary out. The more you're doing triple entry Russian dolls stuff internally, the more the hacker has to go right back to the beginning and trick the user. And once you've pushed your security boundary out to the user, you've now created a secure system. So all of those hacks that happen where somebody hacks into an exchange and then steals a huge amount of money, in theory, they can't happen anymore because you can't actually create the data to cause the transaction to happen because everybody's doing triple entry accounting checks. So that's what I would say that uh, people should be looking at, investigate the, the idea of Russian dolls and gradually migrate that concept through the infrastructure. That was the first thought. I had a second thought. Ah, yes, you wanted to ask about how auditors and accountants can prepare themselves in general for this this world. I think there's one thing you can do, and that's a change of attitude. The auditor and the accountant at the moment, they look down on blockchain. And auditors, for example, won't take on blockchain customers. Accountants don't like blockchain in their accounts. So you find this situation where you've got this group, this company, this team, and they've got this wonderful blockchain thing, whatever it is, it's moving forward. They're doing transactions, blah, blah, blah. They can't get the interest of an accountant and they can't get an audit. Now, this in itself could knock a company out. It can stop a company from doing the business so what happens with those businesses is they move from the formal world to the informal world and they do everything on blockchain and they start paying people in crypto, they start receiving their value in crypto, they do all their accounts on crypto on the blockchain and they do it all informally, like cash accounting, and they just try and keep keep a, a close watch on it and try not to lose the keys. So the effect of accountants and auditors, and it's not just them, it's also the banks, pushing these customers away is actually pushing them to eat their own dog food on the blockchain. And this is a good thing in that gradually, you can see this with DeFi, for example, gradually we're building all the components that we need. Once we get a decent company out there that can show us how to do accounting on the blockchain as accounting on the blockchain, we won't need to do accounting in fiat anymore. We'll be able to do the whole thing on the blockchain. It'll take a while, but somebody will crack that nut. Once we get to the point where an audit can be done on the blockchain we won't need to do audits in fiat anymore we can do it all on the blockchain at that point the auditors the accountants the uh, banks the regulators they've cut themselves out of a job and they've done it because they have sneered at the blockchain and said we don't take on people like you as customers So you can see this, for example, with um, Tether. And I saw this with Block 1, for example. I was related to Block 1 for a while. So so a little bit of an anecdote. Block 1 came out and did a monster coin sale. I think it was like 4.1 billion uh, sale, sold, coin sold, a lot of money. And they promised an audit of the value that had been taken in the coin sale to say, basically, we didn't take that value and then recycle it through and buy our own coins with our own value because that would pump up the price. People complained about this because they saw the price was actually quite significant and a lot of money was being raised. So Block 1 had promised an audit. Now, in the 18 months that I was there, it didn't start. And the reason it didn't start, I have no inside information on this, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. The reason it didn't start was whenever Block 1 went to speak to an auditor, the auditors said, we don't talk to people like you. We don't do business with your type. So we've got this very interesting situation, if you like, where audit has become a public perception as a necessity. It's part of the public goods. A company needs an audit. But now we've got the auditors as a pack, as a crowd saying, we're not going to do business with these people, which denies a right to those companies, those businesses to get an audit. So you've got this very interesting dichotomy where the auditors and you know the banks are doing this and the accountants are doing this, they're just sneering at a certain group of people. they are discriminating against society. They're discriminating against a form of trade. Now, as time goes on, this becomes worse. It's okay if it's a minority and the minority can't complain, but blockchain is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So at some point, blockchain has power. It has lobbying power. It has economic power, et cetera, et cetera, which we've seen now with the the panicked response of the US Treasury. So at some point, the auditors have got to get off their high horse and come down to where the economy is and say, look, we're not going to discriminate against you anymore. We will do your audits. We will do your accounting. Instead of the silliness that the audit companies are doing now, which is to run, you know, little blockchain ventures off the side where they try and sell blockchain services and they run little hubs and that's nonsense. No, their job is to audit, so they should get out there and audit. So that's what I would say the auditors need to do to prepare themselves. They need to rejoin society and stop discriminating. And the same goes for banks. The banks are the worst offenders.
0: Well, that's said now. One of the last questions which I usually ask to my guests is, do you have a favorite quote or a maxim that you live by?
1: That I live by? I don't have a quote. I I suppose the maxim I I would live by is, is the sort of scientific view that reality is reality, and all we really do is observe what's going on but the danger that happens is we we start to live in our own bubble and we start to create a view of reality in our minds which drifts from the other reality that's out there and you see this all the time with for example the regulator's view that the financial system has been under their regulation for so long and this newcomer therefore has to come onto the under the regulation without questioning anything about that process they just make the assumption that there it is we have to regulate it and i i personally worry about when i come into a situation so for example the challenge whether i bring my own baggage in and i'm trying to impose my order on something for my benefit perhaps where it's not actually appropriate so i try to take a very objective point of view and i try to divorce myself from the situation. So consequently, I find myself on both sides of an argument in different days. And it's mostly because I'm looking at somebody who's locked into their own viewpoint. And uh, consequently, some people think I'm a a no-coiner and some people think I'm a a big-coiner because of the way I discuss with different people what's going on. I find myself, if you like, divorced from a lot of the consensus groups out there because the consensus groups are living in their own bubble. So I try not to live in anybody's bubble, which in a sense is, you know, it it makes it very difficult to to interact with people. So the other thing that I do is I always try and maintain good relationships with the people in the bubbles. So I have, have, if you like, friends across the entire scope of blockchain. I have friends who are regulators. I have friends who are auditors, friends who are this, that and the other across the relationship because I want to hear what they've got to say. Very interesting. Yeah, what the opponents have to say. and Try and find out what the reality is between them.
0: Okay, very interesting. Before we go, could you please share with the listeners, maybe if they want to keep learning about your work, where can they find you?
1: I know you're very active on Twitter. Yes, I mean, Twitter is where I sort of, it's my outlet for my rage, if you like. I don't get a lot of good conversations happening with twitter because i'm just i think a bit too extreme for most people and to some extent that's because i've thought about some of these matters so far so long that when i do come up with a particular insight and and prepare it you know put it out on twitter nobody's prepared for that insight so if you want to see the extreme side of life yes i suppose twitter i used to write the blog financial cryptography but i've I've kind of drifted away from blog posting because I found it I don't know, maybe it's, it's just time has moved on and it's no longer the thing, but um, it, it doesn't seem to be to have the, the reward where you find me tricky. I mean, should I be found? Maybe I shouldn't be found.
0: <laughs> maybe. You're
1: right. People will read your book. And will there be any future books? No, the identity cycle was there because I spent a lot of time working out what was going on. And to do that, I had to write these articles. You know, I had to put my thoughts down on words, and I had to keep working on the words until it made sense, until it was a cohesive story. And then I discovered that the, the whole story is so complex, has so many moving parts, so many different things. It crosses so many bases of science that it was, it was not achievable to simply read it and so forth. And I I realized nobody's going to get it. So I have to turn it into a book and get it out there and hope that people can grab something out of that. But it's a sideshow. The whole identity thing is a sideshow. The real action is accountancy, if you like. It's accounts for the Chambers. That's where the real focus is. And the identity is just like a spinoff or a side effect or something like that. But it's a very important one because the whole world is out there saying, oh, I could solve my problem if I had an identity solution. And you can see this, for example, with the prominent example is the BIS, Bank of International Settlements, who are doing all the work to create a foundation of theory for the central banks to issue digital cash. What they've discovered, which we knew all along, was that digital cash is, it's easy, it's tractable. I've been doing it for 25 years now. We can do that. Just give us the requirements. But guess what? It doesn't work in your frame unless you've got an identity solution. So what did the BIS say? Oh, we need an identity solution. Okay, we're going to build an identity solution. Without realizing the trap that they've just walked into, building an identity solution will be practically impossible for them because what they will build is a mass financial surveillance system. And once they realize what they've done, if they're honest, if they have integrity, they'll just pull the plug straight away because that is not where we want society to go. And the central banks are, if you like, one of the few regulators who realize they don't want society to go in a bad direction. So they're in in a trap there. They're in a trap. So um, that's why I wrote the book. No, there aren't any other books to follow. I would add, we talked about block one trying to do an audit. Just to finish off that anecdote they asked for an audit of all these auditors, and the auditors told them to piss off. Eventually, they found an auditor to do it. And just at the beginning of this year, they released the audit. And it said, yes, we didn't recycle. There was no evidence that the money was recycled through the, uh, the coin sale. And that, that, I believe, was the case, because there was no point in recycling. It was going well enough, as it is, without the recycling. So, but it took three years, after I'd left, I think, before that audit was done, so yes, block one did meet their commitment to do an audit. They did it in a very long time frame. So luckily they didn't actually commit to a time frame. But this shows just how you know an organization with an unlimited budget for audit could not get an auditor's attention. That has to change. Wow. End of well,
0: <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ian. This has been so much fun. I've learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners have as well. I'd like to also thank Mikey Kauscheit for, without whom this interview would not have been possible. I will include all the the links for your books when you'll be sending them to me, of course, on the website. And uh, yeah, we'll be in touch soon. This will be a long journey to uh, see the development of triple entry accounting and how this will really affect
1: accounting
0: and auditing in practice. But
1: let's see what happens accounting does move at um, geological speed. It it took 800 years to get from double entry to triple entry. So it's not going to happen this decade. It's probably going to happen next century. So (laughs) be patient. Be patient. You're young. You might actually survive to see it. Thanks a lot again, Ian. We'll speak soon. Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. I would like to thank everyone for listening to this episode. You will find all the links of the episode, show notes and transcript on the website of The Accountant Quits at theaccountantquits.com. Please note that this content is for general information purposes only and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. If you do know anyone who could benefit from the episode and you care about them, please do share the episode with them. All the episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And by leaving us a review and rating, you will support the channel and all your fellow accountants. In order to be notified each time we release a new episode, do follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn. We hope to have you with us next time. Bye for now.